Hey, as the children leave, um, please turn to Exodus. We're going to be in the first chapter, starting in verse 8. And we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 10. And please listen closely. This is God's word. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would, pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the time that we can gather together and humble ourselves before your word. Lord, what we read here is different than what our eyes glance over all during the week. Lord, so many things vie for our attention, vie for our money, vie for our energy. 
Lord, I pray here in this place we would reserve all of those things, everything of who we are, for your word. Lord, for your words are life. And we ask now that through the power of your spirit you would write them on our hearts. Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight we're beginning a new series on the gospel as found in the book of Exodus. It's likely going to last us through February. Um, I feel I have to say this right at the start because right after I announced this, somebody sent me a link. I, I did not choose this because of the Christian Bale and Ridley Scott movie coming out in December, uh, which, you know, I think it's called, what is it, uh, Kings and Gods, the Exodus story. Um, I'm not going to rent out the Edge Theater or things like that, and we all go there and see it as a church family. Pure coincidence. The, the reason that I chose to go through the book of Exodus is because Exodus is a foundational book for understanding what we would call the gospel. Now, for some of you, the idea of going to the Old Testament to find the gospel might be a foreign idea to you. Maybe you grew up hearing that the Old Testament is all about law, and it's the New Testament that tells us about grace and about Jesus. But this isn't the case at all. Now, one can only understand the gospel if one truly understands what God is doing in the Old Testament. I would go so far to say as one can only understand the life of Jesus if one understands the book of Exodus first. That those two are so intertwined. Now, I confess that the idea that the gospel or that Jesus is found all throughout the Old Testament was an idea that was really foreign to me uh, growing up in church. I grew up in a good Baptist church. I was the only youth my age, um, so I was in Sunday school class. It was just me. Uh, the result was I really got to know the Bible stories. I know the Bible stories really well. I just didn't have any idea what they meant, okay? Uh, and I love the Old Testament stories, but I would walk away thinking, okay, the, the point of this, if it wasn't just some kind of moral tale, it was, you know, so if I circle around a building seven times, you know, they'll collapse. Or if I have enough faith, I can part waters. Um, if I have enough faith and I'm brave, I can slay giants. Um, I can kill a thousand people with the jawbone of an ass. Um, I, I can donkey, donkey. I was just thinking right out there. Some of you are like, huh. Eh. Um, <laughs> vocabulary hasn't changed that much, right? Uh, jawbone of a donkey. I, I would go around thinking like, if I just had enough faith, I could be like these Old Testament saints. And, uh, and I, I, they're, they're supposed to teach me some moral lesson. But the idea that these Old Testament stories teach me about Jesus or the gospel was not something that I'd ever went to them for. And I was so wrong. All of them point to Jesus. Exodus points to Jesus. Uh, perhaps a, a better way I could put this is Exodus really lays the foundation for Jesus. Or Exodus gives us the vocabulary we need to describe Jesus. That's what we're going to find. We're, we're going to get the building blocks, the vocabulary we need to define Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of people use the same words but have 
really different meanings when they use those words. So if I were to throw out the word liberal, instantly everybody here, they've got liberal defined. It's just a person who believes, you know, politically left to them. You know, wherever they are, but if they're left to them, they are a liberal. And so if I were to throw out the name like is, you know, uh, Mitt Romney liberal, some would say yes, and others would say no, and, but yet they both think that they would know what the word liberal meant. So we're using the same vocabulary, but we're having different meanings of the word. And so I think there's definitions, theological words that we use every single Sunday that people have vastly different definitions of. If I were to ask, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I were to throw out that term, I bet 99.5% of you would say, absolutely, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Then if I were to ask you to, de to define what you mean by that, I bet we'd have a pretty wide range. We have the same problem when going through the rest of the theological words we find throughout the Bible. When I was in college ministry and I was preparing college students to go on a mission trip, I'd always ask them, all right, what I need for you to do is to define the gospel for me without using any word that ends in T-I-O-N. You're not allowed to use the shuns, okay? So you can't use salvation, redemption, sanctification, revelation. You can't use any of those Christianese terms that, that we like to use. And people, and I was like, so I want you to just go ahead, share the gospel with me. And students would find this so hard to do. And I bet you would too. I mean, Jesus could explain the gospel to where a child can understand it, but, but we're like, we need all this, the, 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 all the Sean words. Much of our Christian vocabulary, all of those Sean words, need to be defined. And I think one of the places that we define these words is going to Exodus. Words like salvation, redemption, freedom, phrases like blood of the lamb, all of these will come from this book, Exodus. This is where they are first mentioned. Exodus is going to give us the vocabulary we need to understand our faith. So if you don't have a good understanding of Exodus you're going to have a very limited understanding of Christ. And I'm not exaggerating on this. Um, I could pull from a number of texts. Let me just pull from one. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 9, you're welcome to turn there. Luke chapter 9. A very familiar story. It's a story about the Mount of Transfiguration. Beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We'll just stop there. We, we, we know this story. We know Jesus. He goes up to a mountain, and his face is transfigured. It's shone like the sun, and it's really interesting that he finds both Elijah and he finds Moses there. 
I mean, why, why would they be there? What were they talking about? And it's really interesting that Moses also climbed up a mountain. We'll, we'll get to this story later. He climbed up a mountain. His face was transfigured at one point, shined bright in glory. Verse 31 here says that the topic of their conversation was that Jesus was talking about his departure. The, the word departure literally is the Greek word for exodus. They are talking about the exodus. Jesus is talking with Moses about his own exodus. Uh, the exodus for Moses was all the plagues and it was the parting of the Red Sea. But the exodus for Jesus would be the cross. The exodus for Moses uh, gives us the visual of, of judgment being poured out on sin and the plagues, and it gives us this visual of redemption. But it's on the cross that we see Exodus with a capital E. Moses, Exodus with a little e, pointing to the real redemption, the real freedom from slavery. Those things we find at the cross and the Exodus Jesus provides there. And so we see this just here. The whole story of Moses, the whole exodus there is a foreshadowing of what we find when we look at the life of Jesus. So as we come to understand what God is doing through Moses and the exodus, we come to understand Christ and his work. We also come to understand who we are. We're going to learn a whole lot about who we are as we go through this book. Um, I love this. One of the commentaries that I read, um, it, it said this. If you were to ask a Hebrew who lived 3,000 years ago, that's when the Exodus was happening. If you were to ask a Hebrew 3,000 years ago to tell you their story, he'd probably say something like this. Well, I was lost in my sin. I was a slave. But God had compassion on me. I called out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he heard my cry, and he saved me. He didn't judge me. He didn't punish me. No, he delivered me through the blood of the Lamb. And now that I am set free, I can experience God, and I can worship him as he takes care of me, as he guides me through all my life. And he is now leading me to the promised land where there will no longer be any tears or sorrow, but only joy. Now, that's what a Hebrew would say living 3,000 years ago if you were to ask them their story. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, would you say anything different from that? Anything. I mean, we were lost. We were in bondage to our sin, yet God had compassion on us. God rescued us. And it was all because of the blood of the Lamb that we were spared and judgment did not fall on us. We've been forgiven, we've been freed, and now we can worship Jesus and He guides us and He is leading us to the promised land. He's leading us to a place of endless joy. We could both describe the same thing. And what you need to see is that as we look at the people of God in Exodus, their story is our story. 
It gives us the lens that we need to understand what's going on in our life as Christians. So the best way to understand our salvation is to understand their salvation. Well, the book of Exodus, we'll just jump right in. It begins where Genesis leaves off. You have the sons of Jacob. They're in Egypt. Remember Joseph's descendants there. He brought in all of his brothers, and then they've multiplied. 400 years have gone by, and now all these sons of Jacob have grown to a multitude. They're they're so great, Pharaoh is now scared of them. This fear of all of these Hebrews uh, makes the Egyptians uh, enslave them. And actually, slavery is the dominant theme throughout the book of Exodus. Over and over again, actually 97 times, you're going to hear the word serve or slave. It's the theme of Exodus. And so you need to see it all through the the light of that word. And so the, the key question that I want to keep coming up as we go through Exodus is this question. Who is Israel going to serve? Who are they going to serve? When you look at verses 12 and 14 of chapter 1, it certainly looks like they're going to serve Egypt. Look at those verses again. Look at verse 13. Or sorry, we'll go all the way to verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I've yet to find a really good English translation of this. um, That shows that the words work and the words serve are the exact same word in Hebrew. The word abad. Really, you can read this text like this. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and all kinds of service in the field. In all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. Now, translators, they don't write it like this because you kind of get an F in English. Uh, There's a reason we have synonyms. But sometimes you can miss the point that the author's pounding in this idea of who are they serving? Who are they serving? Who are their taskmasters? And it's Egypt. This is the theme of this book. It's about taking a people from serving Pharaoh and oppression and a bitterness and taking them over to serving God in joy and in delight. Something you have to be very careful of, and I want to be sure I'm clear about this. You cannot think of this book as a declaration of independence. It's not. It's actually a declaration of dependence upon God. Not of just freedom, but of dependence upon God. The Israelites are moving away from Pharaoh, but they are moving towards a dependence upon God. Now, I bet if you were to go up to an average Joe on the street, if your name's Joe, 
you're not average, but I'm just going to say average Joe on the street, and ask them, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? I mean, most people who have like the most nominal knowledge of the Bible would say, let my people go. I mean, we have songs about that. I've seen cartoons about that. I picture Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments saying, you know, let my people go. That's what we think. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh. The problem is Moses doesn't say that to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. God doesn't want to just free the Israelites. Here, here's freedom. Just, just enjoy your freedom. Okay, now, now go out and be free and make it on your own. He says, no, I'm freeing you for a purpose to serve me. I'm freeing you from that service to bring you into this service. Not just to be free. They are free to someone. Free to God. You know, what Moses understands here is really quite profound. He teaches that every person is a slave to someone or something. Every person is a slave to someone or something. But God intends to free you from that and to make you do what you were created to do, and that is to serve Him. But everybody's serving somebody. You're either serving money or serving power. Some of you are serving the approval of your parents, serving recognition, serving affection, serving sex, serving your work. But every person serves. Every person is a slave. This is how you know what you serve. Whatever controls your ability to have happiness or joy, Whatever controls your ability for joy is what you serve. It's the master of your life. So, so ask yourself, what thing in my life, if it were removed, would leave me joyless? What thing is that? That's your master. Shows what your joy is dependent on. And let me tell you, if your master is anything other than God, for one, it is like sinking sand, and it will go away. And it will prove to be an evil taskmaster at some point. It's interesting, Americans, you know, give me liberty or give me death. You know, we're, we're, we're the ones who, like, we celebrate our freedom more than anybody, our independence more than anybody. And so we really like to deny the fact that Every person is a slave because we really think, no, everybody is free. But it's not true. Because whenever you tie up your joy to getting recognition or your joy to, to having that perfect home, that perfect kitchen, <laughs> finding that spouse, your joy is wrapped up in that, you're not free. Even if you think, well... All I really want is the ability to make my own choices. That's all I need. Well, then you're enslaved to your own freedom. A few years ago, and I'm sure it's changed since then, but I went to a Winn-Dixie, and I counted the number of cereals. All right? I know. This is what I get paid to do. 
So I, I, I go there and, I mean, just Cheerios, okay? Now, I mean, there's, there's multi-grain Cheerios. There's kind of like the Fruit Loop imitation Cheerios. There's the lightly sweetened Cheerios. Uh, what else? What other kind of Cheerios? Chocolate Cheerios. The, the b- banana nut Cheerios. Yeah, y'all know them all. Wow. <laughs> all right, there, there's, there's a lot. And so I just went and I just wanted to count through all the different types of cereal there were. And just like a rough count, and I'm sure I didn't get them all, there was 203 different types of cereal um, at the Winn-Dixie. And I went over to the potato chip aisle, and I was like, I'd forget it. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to count these. Yet how many times do you walk up and down the cereal aisle, and you're like, hmm, what is the perfect, you know, cereal for me? I need just the right amount of sweetness. You know, it can't have too many sugar, too much sugar grams, you know. And so you, you spend forever just thinking through those things. But you're free to make all of these choices. How many times do you, you know you get on Netflix and you're scrolling through? And you're like, you've gone through a hundred movies, and you're like, there is nothing to watch. <laughs> nothing. This stinks, you know. And it's, it's time for you to go out to eat with some friends. You're like, where do you want to eat? You know, I don't know, Mexican, Chinese, I don't know, Italian. Gosh, there's no place to eat around. I mean, what? Gosh. And you sit there forever wasting like 30 minutes just trying to decide of all the plethora of restaurants everywhere where you're going to eat. Tell me, is that freedom? Is that real freedom? Or are you enslaved to your ability to have to be able to make your own personal choice in everything? Think of all the time wasted in making those decisions. I'd say Americans as a whole are enslaved to their prosperity. I was thinking this when we had everybody over and we were talking about how we would reach the poor. Dwight was leading that discussion. The truth is this. If you only owned two winter coats, only two, and you saw somebody shivering in the cold, you'd likely give them one. But when you own ten, and you could go into your closet and you could think, well, this one matches, you know, th- this my light-colored pants. This one matches my dark-colored pants. This is more that kind of in-between jacket when it's kind of cool in the morning, but it gets kind of hotter later. And you start going through all of these things. You know, you know who you give to? How many? None. The, the, the more you get, the more you're enslaved to it. You'll never deceive yourself and think, you know, the more I get, the more generous I will be. It's actually statistically proven the exact opposite. The poorer you are, the more generous you are. Because you're being freed of those things. In America, our prosperity enslaves us. I'm sure as I've been going through these things, some of you are thinking, I really would like to, as a matter of fact, I have tried to free myself from these things. I've tried to free myself from materialism. I've tried to, to live a, uh, a more simple life. I've tried to free myself from a need from approval. But you haven't been able to do so. Let me tell you why. Is you just want to be freed from something, but not freed to something. You just want to let those things go but you're only freed from those things to God. I was talking to a former neighbor. He was an alcoholic, and he was like, he really wanted to be freed from that. And he said, I've I've tried Jesus, okay? I was like, well, there's your problem right there. Because anybody who says, I tried Jesus, wants to get free from something. You have to trust Jesus. 
That's being freed from something and giving your life to him. He won't be tried. He will be trusted. You have to hold on to him. You're freed from that for a purpose. Now we can see from this text here that God's clear desire is to free us from bondage. I want to see that in the, as, as the chapters unfold, but it doesn't happen the way you at first think. You know, for starters, I don't know if you noticed, but God is remarkably absent in the first couple of chapters of Exodus. And you look and you really don't see him anywhere. Uh, the Israelites, they're in the midst of terrible oppression, yet God's nowhere there to be found. And I know this is probably where a lot of you are right now. I mean, there's, there's horrible things going around and you're looking, I'd like to be freed from some of these things, but you don't see God anywhere. Know that you're in good company. That's how this story starts, is God is not present. The only time he's even mentioned is just with these two Hebrew midwives, and it just says that God gave them children. That's it. But there's no miracles, there's no displays of power, there's no burning bushes yet. All you have is cries for help without any answer. And what you have to do is, through faith, believe that God is working behind the scenes already. He's moving in a quiet and unexpected way that we don't see yet. He works in a really unexpected way here. You can see this in the five women that are mentioned in these first couple of chapters. These five women. The first two women I want us to look at are Shifra and Pua. One of y'all needs to just name your child one of these names, all right? Shifra and Pua. Just putting it out there. I've heard names. It's not odd. These two women were, they were Hebrew midwives, which means that they are the lowest of the low, low in society. We have little bumper stickers everywhere. Free the midwives kind of goes with this whole theme here. That's not what it's talking about. Midwives here seem very respectable positions. Here, not at all. They were the lowest of the low. First, they were Hebrews, which meant they were slaves. Two, they were women in a male-dominated culture. Three, they would have been barren. You became a midwife if you yourself could not produce children. So you would help others produce children. And let me tell you, in this day, it's, I mean, it's, it's today as well. A lot of us find our identity in the ability to find, have children. But much more in this day. If you could not have children you are really looked down upon. And that's why you go through the Bible and you'll find people going, give me children or let me die. That's their prayers to God because they feel so worthless if they don't. Now think of these slaves, these women, they are childless, and every day they are reminded of that as they help others have kids. They are the lowest of the low of the low. Yet it's these powerless these oppressed women, they are the first to stand up to the most powerful man in the land, Pharaoh. And I love the way that the author, he, he brings out how God sees the situation. He names these two women. He gives them names. Pharaoh doesn't have a name. 
But these women have a name. And I love it. You go through all these different commentaries uh, through the book of Exodus. And they, the one thing they can agree on is that none of them can agree on the name of who this Pharaoh was. Nobody knows who this Pharaoh really is, what his name was. I love that. 3,000 years go by. We don't know this guy, but we know these two helpless, oppressed women by name. Their fame has outlasted the mightiest man in the land. You see, God does not look at people like we do. He doesn't look at the powerful. He doesn't look at the rich, the intelligent, and think, hmm, now that's a person I think I can use. It doesn't work that way. I, I mean, he proves it. Every time you know somebody who is a really good musician but doesn't know the Lord, almost every time they become a Christian, their music stinks. I mean, have you noticed that? It just, you know, it always goes downhill. I'm thinking God's like, finally, I found somebody really worthy. But then it goes down. God usually, he just, he finds people who are the lowest of the low of the low. The people who seemingly have nothing to offer and he makes them something beautiful. Just like these two Hebrew midwives who are nothing. He is drawn to the oppressed. You see that throughout scripture. You see that in Jesus. When Jesus came, who was he drawn to over and over? Those who had absolutely nothing to offer. These women have names. Pharaoh and all his power, all his riches is utterly forgotten. The next women that we see, the next woman is Moses' mom. Moses' dad is introduced in 2.1. That's his entry and his exit. We don't ever hear from him again. But it's his mom who now takes center stage. And she is the one who, you know, who gets Moses and sees him as beautiful. And then one of the most creative acts of defiance and obedience to Pharaoh's order, she does throw her child into the Nile. But just in a basket to save him. And when we see Moses next, we see Moses' sister, the next woman on the scene. She watches and she follows this basket all the way to where Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe, the fifth woman. And it's Pharaoh's daughter who actually defies her father's command. And she sees this Hebrew child and she doesn't kill the Hebrew child, but she has compassion on the child. You have Moses' sister who then takes a risk and she breaks the social boundaries of the day. And she, a Hebrew slave, actually addresses a princess. Not only addresses her, but gives her advice. Hey, I, I mean, I know somebody who could take care. Why don't, why don't you do this? You, you didn't do that, but she took a risk. And amazingly, Pharaoh's daughter listened to that advice and followed her. But when you go through the first couple of chapters, notice there are no heroic men at all. There's only women. And all five of these women had the same qualities. They had compassion and they took risk. They had compassion and they took risk. They were very unlikely candidates to be used by God, used to save Israel, but it's exactly the type of person that God chose. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And we see him doing that here. Now remember, in these first couple of chapters, we don't see God. He seems to be absent, but I, I want you to kind of take a step back, and I think you really can see him at work behind the scenes, especially when you look at Pharaoh. Notice how everything the most powerful man in the land does works against him. Everything. He decides to put taskmasters over Israel. But in verse 12, it says that the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they grew. How does that work? It worked right here. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the male children. But they wouldn't. Not only that, God then blesses the midwives to have children of their own. Pharaoh gives the command to have all the babies, male babies, thrown into the Nile. But because of this very command to do this, an Israelite, the Israelite who will eventually free all of the Hebrews from slavery, an Israelite comes to his very own doorstep and is going to live and be raised in the palace. He is inviting in the very person who will bring about his destruction. And yet in all of this, we don't see God out in the open. It's just behind the scenes. But all of these players seem to be doing his bidding without even knowing it. Now do you see how that's a real comfort to us? I I hope you do. When life is just absolutely throwing its worst and you don't see God anywhere, just take a step back and trust. You know what, God, behind the scenes, you are working all of these things for my good. You have promised that. Even if I can't see it. Even when I look at the most powerful agents around me, the most powerful forces that seem to be bent on destroying me, I know that you're using them for my good. We see that here. This whole story lays the foundation for the gospel. We'll end here. It sheds light on the story of Jesus. Don't walk away. Please don't walk away hearing from this. You know what? The point of this story is you need to have compassion. You need to take risk. Don't walk away thinking, you know, you need to free yourselves from whatever sins you have. The point of this is it all goes to Jesus who is necessary for any of these things to happen. I mean, doesn't the story of Moses just sound somewhat vaguely familiar to those of you who were in Sunday school about a guy who came 1,500 years later in which there was an evil ruler bent on destroying all of the children? Yet there's a child who miraculously escapes. He'll become the deliverer. And not only that, if we had gone through and read chapter 2, you would see that in the story of Moses, Moses was first rejected by his people and then went out into the desert where he then was empowered by God to come in. Does that sound familiar? Somebody coming to his own and was rejected by them? Somebody who went out into the wilderness, empowered by God to free his people? This story points to Christ. It gives us the vocabulary we need, the foundation we need to understand the true exodus that he provides for us. Pray with me.
Lord, I know in this introductory sermon there was a lot to digest. A lot thrown out there. Lord, but even as I was going through that, that just really whet my appetite for what is to come. Lord, I pray that every week you would build in us a greater and greater anticipation for you, Jesus. And I pray you begin giving us that vocabulary we need to where we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, right now in this moment, for those who are serving harsh taskmasters, taskmasters that might look beautiful on the outside, but Lord, that have oppressed them to no end, who they turn to for joy, but has only given them bitterness and sorrow. Lord, right now, I pray that you would begin freeing them from that. They would have their own exodus. They'd be freed from those things to you, Jesus. We don't want to try you. We want to trust you in this moment. We pray this in your name. Amen.